But today we do begin a brand new series. We're calling it Mission Minded. It's going to be a four-week series, and over these four weeks, we're going to be talking about three primary themes, and those themes are gospel, community, and vision. And so we're going to be talking about how those three themes interweave with the mission that we have here. We're going to be kind of dipping in and out of kind of the mission that the local church has that's kind of universal to the expression of what we call church. But we're also going to be talking about how that relates to us here, Reachway Church, in this particular city, and even a little bit smaller in this particular neighborhood. So we're going to be talking about the mission that the local church has and what that looks like tangibly for us in this particular day and time and in this particular place. And so I'm really excited to talk about a few new initiatives that we're going to be rolling out as we continue to explore what does it look like for us to be us here. Those, those are really important conversations to have. But the reason we're talking about mission for four weeks is because the ebbs and flows of life can at times detract us from the things that we really need to be zoned in on. If we are not operating from a place of the why in any area of life, then it can be really easy to kind of lose our footing, lose our foundation, and we can become, uh, you know, we, we can lose track of where we're heading. If we don't have a, a why as we enter into work, if we don't have a why as we enter into being a part of a local church and just a whole host of other things, then we can lose sight of things. And so we want to be sure we take time here to spend a good month talking about why we do what we do. The reason we're doing that is not just because that's a good strategic thing to do. Uh, the reason we're doing that is because when we step into the new full life that we believe is offered to us through the salvation of God, that we are also given a new perspective and mission for the lives that we live. New life, new mission, and a new purpose where the good news of Jesus meets us where we are, restores some of the brokenness in our lives, and then we're actually given a new purpose and mission in life. And it ends up, as it were, being God's mission, because he has a mission too, for seeing all of creation reconciled and restored back to him. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean for all that uh, a new mission means a new place I need to live or a new job that I need to have or just a very significant change in my life. For some, that ends up being the case. And those are beautiful things, and we praise God for those. But it doesn't have to be just that. We can have new eyes. We can have new lenses to view the world through, still living in the house we live in, still having the job that we have. And, and those are good things as well because God plants us in specific places for specific things. So this series is not me trying to convince anyone to make some catastrophic change in their life. But it is, hopefully, going to remind us and perhaps rewire some things for us of why we do what we do. And so we'd like to turn to a passage of Scripture the next four weeks that I hope for us really just condenses down this mission. Jesus had a mission when he was here on earth. God has a mission for the earth that he created. And we absorb that mission and we take it on as our own. And you could look through the Bible, you could look through the New Testament, the gospel accounts, and 
can find one verse here, or a couple sentences here, or a story here to really boil down what the mission is. And, and I've made a, a bit of an attempt, but it comes from the Gospel of Mark. This is going to be a verse we read every single week, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, just to kind of set the tone for what we're going to be talking about. Uh, and this is what that verse says. It says, go in to all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole of creation. If, if there was a sentence in scripture that really condensed things for us, if you're familiar with uh, church talk at all, you've heard of perhaps the Great Commission or something like that. And there's different fragments of it depending on where you're reading in the Bible. But there's a verse here in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 15. Go into all the world, proclaim the good news to the whole creation. This is the mission that Jesus hands off to his disciples. And this is the mission that kind of gets handed off to us as well. Of course, plenty of generations removed from when Jesus was here on earth, but the mission hasn't really changed. It's proclaiming the good news to the whole of creation. So that's kind of the tone that I hope we enter into this morning with, as well as the following three weeks as we work through this series. So to kind of frame what we'd like to talk about today, we, we start with this idea that probably we can all resonate with, is that ranging in matters of significance and importance and implication, humans tend to arrange themselves in category. Uh, we, we tend to find places to fit. And that's not all inherently bad, but this is how that plays out sometimes in life is is if you're from that region, that neighborhood, uh, that state, whatever, that country, um, if you per perhaps hold that opinion, or if you have that viewpoint, or have that ideology, and the list goes on and on and on and on, of how humans just kind of find ourselves fitting into categories. It's a very natural thing to do, and there's nothing inherently wrong about that. It, it really drives a lot of our interpersonal uh, relationships and the discourse that we have as people, finding like-minded people or people that we have uh, things in common with. We, we organize ourselves, and then we go on from there. Very natural thing to do, but there's a very dangerous side of that coin. <laughs> and I'd like to talk about that for just a moment. When those categories... When those labels become categories that exclude or assume things about someone in another category, that's where it can get very, very dangerous and worth talking about for just a moment. Uh, we find ourselves in different groupings, like-minded people, nothing wrong with that. It's very natural for us. But what we need to do is we need to reconcile that reality with the realities of the gospel with the realities of the good news, the mission that God has for the earth. And so that's why we're going to take some time today to talk about the gospel. Um, this is where it can get dangerous. This is where categories can get dangerous for us, is if we find ourselves saying something along the lines of this. They are from there, so they must. Dot, dot, dot. They believe that so they must, dot, dot, dot. 
well, if, if they're dressed like that, then, then they must. Dot, dot, dot. These are very dangerous phrases to say. Because what I have learned to be true is that they're not often accurate. Uh, this, this is binary thinking. This is either or. This is this or that. Heads or tails. Right or left. That, that's the way of thinking that we find ourselves in a lot. Is if, if I'm a part of this group, then I must think like that. If they are a part of this group, then they must think like that. This is the conventional wisdom of the day. This is perhaps the easiest way to navigate life, is to just draw lines in the sand, make boxes around things, and that's just the easiest way to navigate life, because life gives us a clear direction if we allow life to do so. You think this way? Well, so do they. And this is what they do with their time, their money, their energy, their resources, and so you should do it too. It's a very easy way to navigate life, but I don't think it's the best way. I don't think sometimes conventional wisdom is the way that we need to go, especially when you start reading stories about how Jesus talked to and treated people, the people that were on that side of the railroad tracks, the people that lived in that village. It's very difficult for you to look at the life of Jesus and put him into a category. Very difficult to do so, and I would just argue it's impossible, <laughs> except the category would be, Christ-like, right? I mean, that's, that's the category, which is unlike any other category out there. Conventional wisdom that I talk about isn't just particular to the times that we live in now. I'm sure you could think of a couple examples, maybe as I was talking you did. Conventional wisdom is not exclusive to modern times, although it's heavily prevalent. If you were to explore much of the Old Testament, which is kind of the first chunk of our, of our Bibles, and and much of the New Testament as well, um, you read the story of the Hebrew people. If you're opening up the Old Testament, starting with the book of Genesis, what you are reading there is a historical account of the Hebrews, which is really cool that we get those insights. Uh, the Hebrew tribe, way, way, way back before computers, obviously, was, a, was an oral tradition. So the things that we read were spoken and were stories sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years before they were ever written down. Um, there was a conventional wisdom of the day where the people called the Hebrews were making sense of Yahweh, making sense of God, and what that looked like for them but not only what it looked like for them, but what it looked like for them in relation to others. And so when we're reading stories of the Old Testament, and we get it in the New Testament as well, there is a conventional wisdom that is employed. Essentially, that says, if you are a Jew, you are a person of God. If you are not a Jew, then you're not. <laughs> That's a pretty black and white thing to say. And that's how people were organized. That conventional wisdom, this or that, us and them, left or right, whatever the binary spectrum is, that's not unique to us. Kind of day one, that's kind of how it was. Where if you were a Jew, you were a person of God. You were part of the nation of Israel. 
here's kind of the the unwritten footnote of not being a Jew, not being a person of God, but what everyone on the other side of the coin thought was that that means you don't have any hope. So, so that was kind of the that was kind of the unspoken, unwritten thing is, yeah, you know, people of God, not people of God, but what the people of God would often do is when they would look at people who weren't Jews, not people of God, that would also kind of translate into, and there's no hope for them. And if you can get there mentally where there's no hope for someone, then all of a sudden you can probably get to a place where they actually might become your enemy. So there's actual violent conflicts that would take place between one group of people that feel like they have it, and that same group of people really believing that the other group doesn't. You see how dangerous that can be? You see how easy it could have that, that we could have account after account after account of violence? It's very difficult to reconcile the violence that we read about in Scripture. I think perhaps one day we'll spend some time talking about it, because those are serious things. But, but you can see how easy that could be. Part of a group of people that really believe that they have it. We see a turn in the second half of the Old Testament, we begin hearing from people that were called prophets. If you're familiar with Jeremiah or Ezekiel, and there are many others in the scriptures, these people called prophets, and what prophets did was they confronted conventional wisdom. They confronted the status quo, and they said, I know that a large majority of you think this, but are you sure that you're right? <laughs> are, are you sure that that's actually how it's supposed to be? A unique thing about prophets in the Old Testament was that they were hearing the voice of God. We talked about that God has a mission. There was a period in time where God's mission included finding people with faith and courage, and boldness to be able to stand before entire nations that think, that thought completely differently than the prophet, but proclaim a narrative that was the opposite of the majority. It takes a prophet to address conventional wisdom. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, if you've heard of Hosea, Amos, and Martin Luther King Jr., by the way. We still have prophets. What's a prophet? A prophet is someone that proclaims a message that is true, <laughs> but is disagreed by the majority of those in authority and power. Because what do prophets end up getting? Killed. There is zero exception in the scriptures for prophets not having their life ended by the majority that disagree. God still uses prophets today. We should pay attention to people who might have something to say that you might not agree with. In his ministry, another such prophet, the prophet Isaiah, if you're familiar with him, he had this to say in chapter 49, verse 6. I will also make you a light for those who do not yet know me, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Prophet Isaiah, 
prophet hears from God, he says this. And we can assume that if it's coming out of the mouth of a prophet, that it is against the conventional wisdom. Where Isaiah says, hearing from God, confronting the religious conventional wisdom of the day, a message that shouts, God's salvation is for all people. Isaiah couldn't have said it any clearer. That this is what needs to be heard by the people. God says to us, I will make you a light for those who do not yet know me, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is a passage that discusses the, that discusses the mission of God, the mission that he has. Uh, the passage before this, verse 5, says, it's not enough for you to be a light to people who already know me. I really like that language. It, it kind of disrupts. It disrupts ways of life. God says, not enough for you just to exist for the people that know me right now in this point in time. No, I'm also going to make you a light for those who do not yet know me. And so all of a sudden, the binary thinking of Jew and non-Jew gets blown up. He uses the word light. A light for those who do not yet know me. Um, there's actually a reason we light a candle, candles, is to be reminded that we have seen the true light of the world in the person of Jesus Christ. That the light of the world has come. We have met him, God in flesh, God with us, Jesus Christ. And the light of the world, as it were, gave us a good news, gave us a gospel, gave us a message to talk about. And I want to help us organize it in three really important and three really distinct moves. And the first one is the good news in general, is that the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ has made possible the hope of new life to be experienced here on earth. That's a very meaty sentence, but it's a very important one. Is that there are things that have been made possible not just by the life, if we were to isolate that of Jesus, not just the death, not just the resurrection, and not just the ascension, but all four of those profound movements working together in what we call the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, making possible new life for us where we can be born of our mothers and we can be born again here on earth in a new life with new lenses and new viewpoints and new ways to approach the world. It's good news. <laughs> Real good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of this gospel is an invitation. Believing that this gift of new life is offered to all people regardless of their past, regardless of their present circumstances. This gift is offered to all. The invitation part of the good news, the gospel, is massive. We talk about it. We try to talk about it as much as we can. And this gospel enters people into a new way. We believe that a new, full life is experienced by those who choose to go the way of Jesus, to go the Jesus way, and participate in the making of all things becoming right. That's what it means to be a citizen in what we call the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel. This is the 
cornerstone that we just sang about earlier of the good news and the mission that we have here on earth. This is what it's all about, a good news, an invitation, and a new way. But I'd like to spend the remainder of our time, a couple more minutes, talking about how we are to embody this good news. We started off in a passage of Mark, go into the world and proclaim the good news to the whole of creation. I want to kind of zero in on what it looks like to go into the world and proclaim. We have the what. The good news is our what. What's the good news? We've got it. How are we supposed to embody it? That is what I would like to talk about. When we're talking about how to operate in the world, in light of the good news, it doesn't require me to find some obscure scripture in 2 Samuel and like Samuel says something and it opens up the Pandora's box and now we can have the answer. That's not how this has to work. You know what all I have to do? The only thing I have to do is read you what is probably the most memorized passage of scripture and the verse after it. Aha. John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Great. Also, <laughs> for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Those two verses are the how. Really, the first verse is the what. The second verse is the how. There is tension that exists between the idea of what it means for someone to be saved and the reality of condemnation. If you are a Facebook friend of mine, you heard from me the other day <laughs> about how employing condemnation as a means to save is lazy and false and empty of any kind of good news. Employing guilt and condemnation is, if, if I can just speak off cuff, is lame and bogus. And it's also wrong and not how God operated. To paint a picture, I'd like to uh, give you this image. If, if you grew up and perhaps uh, you wanted to be a firefighter growing up, or a lifeguard, I don't know how many dreams we have of being firefighters and lifeguards. Imagine with me, if you would, uh, a house that is on fire. One of the ones in this neighborhood. Some of these big, older homes where a lot of people can live in, and it's on fire, completely engulfed, and, you know, the fire department rolls up, and they've got their sirens, and they've got their axes, and they're chopping down doors, and because this is our dream, right? If you were a kid who wanted to be a firefighter, this is the dream, to storm a burning building. Imagine with me, if you would, a firefighter that got the gear on, went through the door, burning building everywhere. They got their oxygen masks, and they found someone, and they're on the floor, stop dropping and rolling. And they got down on the floor, and they said, hey, I would just love to know how this fire got started. I'll get you out of here in a minute. But if you can just let me know which one, which, which one of you left the oven on, I would really, if we could just have a conversation about that. 
And then they went upstairs because they didn't know because they're on fire. And so they went upstairs and, and the firefighter got down. And all of the firefighters are doing this. It's not just one. It's all of them. They're, they're trying to figure out, could you just explain to me which one of you is guilty of who started the fire? I'll save you then. But I really need to figure out first who started this fire because it's important for us to know before we save you what you're doing wrong. Is anyone with me? Or a lifeguard, Wendy Peppercorn from Sandlot. There's a kid drowning, and I'm a lifeguard, and they're floating to the bottom of the pool. And before I dive in and save the kid, try to find the kid's parents. Why weren't, you know, why, why weren't you caring for your child? Meanwhile, as they're, <laughs> could you imagine if that's how people saved people here on earth? You don't really have to get religious when it comes to firefighters and lifeguards. Like, I get that. But make no mistake about it, there is a theme of rescue in the world that we live in. Firefighters, doctors, and nurses. Someone starts to code, well, let's talk about their diet. No, get the paddles on them. But for some reason, The local church doesn't want to be too generous with giving away eternity. Don't tell me you haven't seen it before. Where evangelism tactics begin with condemning a person? Begin with figuring out all the pieces in your life that you need to get right before you could ever come to my church. Before you could ever pray a prayer, get a part of a Bible study, become baptized. What? If a fire, if we would, if we would get rid of all of our firefighters that went in and tried to have a little powwow before they rescued someone, why on earth would we operate in the same way? Believing that we actually have a message that has actually got some weight to it, believing that we actually have a good news that that can revolutionize someone's life, beginning with condemnation. No. The good news of God is a message of saving, not condemnation. And I think that this way has been lost since it was first revealed. You know what one of the things I hate the most? And I, I use the word hate because I think God hates it is using guilt as a tool to get someone to believe something or make a decision. Guilt? Come on. To allow shame to be a driving force in someone's life? I'm not interested in that. I dislike that. I said it the other day on the internet. <laughs> Employing condemnation as a means to see someone saved is lazy, it is insufficient, and it is empty of good news. 
It just is. Let me tell you what's far more difficult. We're talking about the good news. We're talking about the gospel, people getting saved. What's far more difficult and what is way less compelling is to sit with, journey with, and be patient with someone than it is to condemn them. That is difficult. That is not compelling whatsoever. But can I tell you that if God had not walked with me, sat with me, and been patient with me, and you, and anyone, then no one's saved. Salvation requires patience by those who have been saved, not condemnation. A closing thought. It was not the mission of Jesus to condemn the world. May this be true for us as well. As we respond today to perhaps something that you have heard, I, I, I want to speak to something that relates to this. I, I don't know what your everyday looks like. I don't know the, the people you find yourselves interacting with. If you, if you find yourself in a position to socially engage with people, We talk about all the time how, you know, we're, we are to be like Jesus, ask the question, what would Jesus do? What would he say? What would he think? After we gather every week here, we pray this prayer that we would have the mind, the eyes, the ears, the mouth, the hands, the feet, the heart of Christ. That is something we will never stop praying because that's the goal. And if you're thinking to yourself, I'm just wired to condemn I've been trained to do that. It is so much more natural. It is so much more easy for me to just point out the specks of sawdust in other people's eyes. I want you to know that there is something way greater for you to be invited into than just to sit and scoff. If if Pastor Ruben Saldana in 2005 did not approach me with a message of good news rather than a message of condemnation to an eighth grader going on his freshman year, I would not have been baptized. I would not have been compelled whatsoever with what the church folk were doing. Man, that could have gone the other way. We will, believe me when I say this, we will have opportunities to form relationships with the people that live right there and there and there and there and there and there. And the days are coming where we are going to have a choice when we start building those friendships, when we start sharing dialogue, when we start sharing life together, when we start really getting into the depths of each other's stories, really getting vulnerable with each other, the days are coming and they are coming soon where we are going to have a decision of which message we are going to share, both under the cloak of the gospel 
but is your good news message going to be shared first with condemnation, or is it first going to be shared with the same exact amount of love and patience that was given to you 